Section 5 of Le Petit Nord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan. Le Petit Nord by Anne Grenfell and Katie Spaulding. Section 5. January 15. The journey to Nameless Cove Fair was all that I had hoped for, and a little more thrown in to make weight. Clear and shining with glittering white snow below and sparkling blue sky above, the day promised fair in spite of a mercury standing at ten below zero, and a number of comatics from the mission started merrily forth. All went well, and we reached Nameless Cove without adventure, but at sundown the wind rose. When we left the sail at ten o'clock to return to the house where I was to spend the night, we had to face the full fury of a living winter gale. I caught both my cheeks on the way, or in common parlance I froze them. All through that long tug we were cheered by the thought of a large jug of cream which we had placed on the stove to thaw when we left the house. Do you fancy that cream had thawed? Not a bit of it. The fire was doing its best, but old Boreas was holding our feast prisoner. It had not even begun to disintegrate around the edges. We cut lumps from the icy mass, dropped them into our cocoa, which we made by cooking it inside the stove and directly on top of the coals, hastily popped the mixture into our mouths before it should have a chance to freeze en route, and went promptly to bed. I draw a veil over that night. I drew everything else I could find over me in the course of it. A sadder and a wiser and a chillier woman I rose the morrow morn. Another member of the staff, who had slept in an adjoining house, froze his toe in bed. When we reached home, and I left the comatic at the hospital door, I made out Senath dancing in an agitatedly aimless fashion on our platform. She was also waving her arms about. For a moment it crossed my mind that she had lost her modicum of wits. But as she was immediately joined by Tryphena, I gave up the theory as untenable, and continued to hasten up the hill to the home. Our boiler had sprung not one, but many leaks, and the precious hot water destined for the cleansing of forty was flooding the already spotless kitchen floor. As it is the middle of the week, I had not suspected this calamity, Sunday being the invariable day selected for all burst pipes, special rat banquets, broken noses, toothaches, skinned shins, and such misadventures. The problem now presenting itself for prompt solution is, twenty degrees below zero, a gale blowing from the northwest, two score small unwashed orphans, and a burst boiler. January 21 the oldest inhabitants, and all the others as well, claim that this is the most remarkable winter in thirty years. Not that one is deceived. I suspect them rather of making excuses for the consistently disconcerting climate of Britain's oldest colony. All the same, literally the worst storm I ever experienced has been in progress for the last two days. It began in the morning by the falling of a few innocent flakes. Then the north wind decided to take a hand. All night and all day, and all night again, it shrieked around the house, driving incredible quantities of snow before it. Half an hour after it began, you could not see two yards in front of your face. The man who attends to the hospital heating plant had to crawl on his hands and knees in order to reach his destination, taking exactly one hour to make the distance of two hundred yards. At this institution it is the time-honored custom to rise at five-thirty each morning, which custom, although doubtless good for our immortal souls, is distinctly trying to our too painfully mortal flesh. Added to which, in spite of all our efforts, our pipes are frozen, 
and in this country the ground does not thaw out completely until July or August, when we are making preparations for being frozen in again. Think of what this means for a household of over forty, when every drop of water has to be hauled in barrels by our boys, and the superintendent has to stand over them to compel them to bring enough. Cleanliness at such a cost must surely be a long way towards godliness. I can now appreciate the story of the chaplain from a whaling ship who is said to have wandered into an encampment of the Eskimos. He told the people of heaven with all its glories, and it meant nothing to these children of the north. They were not interested in his story. But when he changed his theme and spoke of hell, with its everlasting fires which needed no replenishing, they cried, Where is it? Tell us that we may go! And big and little, they clamored over him, eager for details. By morning every room on the windward side of our house looked like the inside of an igloo. The fine drift had silted in through each most minute cranny and crevice, even though we have double windows all over the building, and on the night in question we had decided that sufficient fresh air was entering in spite of us to permit our disobeying our self-imposed anti-tuberculosis regulations. The wind and snow are so persistent and so penetrating that the merest slit gives them entrance and the accumulations of such a night make one fancy in the morning that the king of the golden river has paid an infuriated visit to our part of the globe. When I went into the baby's dormitory, every little bed was snowed under, and only the children's dark hair contrasted with the universal whiteness. The second night I verily thought the house would come about our ears. The gale had increased in fury, the thermometer stood at thirty below, and I stayed up to be ready for emergencies. At midnight, thinking one room must surely be blown in, I carried the sleeping babes into another wing of the house. If for any reason we had had to leave the building that night, none of us could have lived to reach a place of safety. I wish you could have seen us the following morning. The snow had drifted in so that in places it was over six feet high. I ventured out and found that every exit but one from the home was snowed up. We had, therefore, to dig ourselves out of the woodshed door and into the others from the outside. You make a dab with a shovel in the direction where you think you last saw the desired door before the storm, and trust the fates for results. Part of our roof has blown off, and our chimney is in a tottering condition. The greatest menace was the telegraph wires. The drifts in places were so huge that as one walked along, the wires were liable to trip one up. The doctor has just taken a picture of the dog team being fed from the third-story window of the hospital. They are clustered on the snow just outside, and on a level with the bottom of the window. Some of the fishermen in their tiny cottages had to be dug out by kindly neighbors, as they were completely snowed under. The storm will greatly delay traveling, and it may be almost spring before this reaches you. It may interest you to know how my letters come to you in the winter time, and then perhaps you will not wonder so much at the delays. The mail is carried across country to Mistaken Cove on the west coast, and then by eight relays of couriers with their dog teams to Deer Lake, where the railway touches. It is a slow method of progress, and there are countless delays owing to the frequent blizzards. Often the mailmen fail to make connections, and the letters may lie a week or a fortnight at some outlandish station. At one place the postmaster cannot even read and the letters have to be marked with crosses at the previous stopping places to indicate the direction of their destination. Another postmaster, well known for his dishonesty, failed to get removed by the authorities because he was the only man in the place who could either read or write, and was therefore indispensable. 
Formerly all the letters had to go to St. John's, a day's extra journey, and be sorted there, sent back across the island to run by guess, eight hours across Cabot Straits, and then across the Atlantic to England. In this way a letter might take nearly three months to make the journey, and we are sometimes that length of time without news. Now a mild has set in, and the incessant drip, drip, drip on the balcony roof outside my window makes me perfectly understand how lunacy and death follow the persistent falling of a single drop on one spot on the forehead. February 11. Last week I had a three days cruise while the doctor considerately sent a nurse up here to try her hand at my family. This time the cruise was on the dogs instead of the rolling sea. We left for Bellevue, Bellevue Bay in good time in the morning, got our anchors early, as our carter put it. The animation of the dogs, the lovely snow-covered country, the bright winter sun pouring down, and doubly brilliant by reflection from the dazzling snow, the huge bonfire in the woods where we cooked the kettle, all make one understand the call which the gypsy answers. Of course there is another side to the story, when one is caught out in bitter weather in a blizzard of driving snow and sleet, and loses the way, or perhaps has to stay out in the open through the night. For instance, this winter four of the mission dogs have perished through frostbite on these journeys, and only last week we heard that one of the mail carriers on the west coast had been frozen to death. A few years ago, one dark and stormy night, the Church of England clergyman was called to the sick bed of a parishioner. He set out at once to cross the frozen bay and reach the cottage in safety. After a visit with the dying man, he started on his homeward way. It was cold, but clear, and he covered half the distance without trouble. Then the weather veered and blinding snow began to drive. The traveler lost his way battling against it, and finally sank down utterly exhausted. He was found dead in the morning on the open bay. A day's trip brought us to Grevigneux, a charming little village nestling in a great bowl formed by the towering cliffs above and around it. Every one in the settlement is a Roman Catholic. Never did I receive such a welcome. The people are so friendly and unspoiled. The priest is a Frenchman, sensible, hearty, full of humor and love for his people. Both his ideas and his manner of expressing them are naive and appealing. I had been told that in his sermons he admonished certain members of his flock by name for their shortcomings. When I questioned him about this he gave me the following explanation. You see, miss, when I die I shall stand before the Lord, and my people will be standing behind me. The Lord will look them over and then look at me, and if any one of them isn't there he will say, Cartier, where is Tom Flanagan? And I should have to answer, Gone to purgatory for stealing boots. And the Lord will say to me, Why, didn't he know better than to steal boots? You ought to have told him. Whatever could I say for myself then? The next night we spent at Lance au Diable, locally known as Lancy Jobble. In this place there is a medicine man, with methods unique in science. He is the seventh son of a seventh son, and his healing powers are reputed to be little short of miraculous. Legend has it that such must never request payment for services nor must the patient ever thank him, lest the efficacy of the cure be nullified. He is an unselfish man, a thorough believer in his own gift, and last summer, for instance, right in the middle of the fishing season, he walked thirty miles through swamp and marsh ridden with black flies to see a sick woman who desired his aid. Doubtless the spell of his buoyant personality does bring comfort and relief. In the adjoining settlement of Bare Need, 
lives an enormously fat old woman of seventy-odd summers. Life passes over her, and its only effect is to make her rotund and unwieldy. When the sick come to Brother Luke for treatment, if any of the few drugs which he has accumulated chance to have lost their labels, a not uncommon contingency in this land of mist and fog, he takes down a likely-looking bottle from the shelf and tries a dose of the contents on this Mrs. Gushy and awaits results. If nothing untoward transpires, he then passes the medicine on to the patient. Mrs. Gushy has a strong, acquisitive bias, and raises no objections to this vicarious proceeding. She argues, I doesn't need em now, but there's be no tellin'. I might need em when I can't get em. Occasionally the sailing is not so smooth. While we were there, the doctor saw a case of a woman from whom this Esculapius had attempted to extract an offending molar, his only instrument being a kind of miniature winch which screws on to the undesired tooth. Its action proved so prompt and powerful that not only did it remove the tooth intended, but four others as well, and the entire alveolar process connected with them. It often made me feel ashamed to find how much some of these people had made of their meagre opportunities. At one house a mother told me that she had only been able to go to school for six months when she was a girl. Yet she had taught herself to read, and later her children also. She showed me most interesting articles which she had written for a Canadian newspaper describing the life on Le Petit Nord. She often had to sit up until two in the morning to knit her children's clothes, and rise again at dawn to prepare breakfast for the men of the household. The following day saw us homeward bound. Only this time the travelling was not so romantic, for a mild had set in, and the going was superlatively slushy. The dogs had all they could do to drag the comatic with the luggage on it. The humans walked, generally in front of the dogs, and on snow rackets to make the trail a bit easier for the animals. This may sound an interesting way to spend a winter's day, but after twenty minutes of it you would cry, Enough! When we reached Bellevue Bay, the ice around the shore was broken into great pans, but in the middle it looked good. To go round is an endless task, so we risked crossing. It was easy to get off to the centre, for the big pans at the edge would float a far greater weight than a comatic and dogs and three people. The ice in the middle, however, which had looked so sure from the land wash, proved to be black. That is, very, very thin, though being salt-water ice, it was elastic. It was waving up and down, so as almost to make one seasick, but in its elasticity lay our only chance of safety. We flung ourselves down at full length on the comatic to give as broad a surface of resistance as possible and what encouragement was given the dogs we did with our voices. Four miles did we drive over that swaying surface, and though at the time we were too excited to be nervous, we were glad to reach the terra firma of the standing ice edge. At each place we were received with the most cordial welcome, and scarcely allowed even to express our gratitude. It was always they who were so eager to thank us for giving them unasked the pleasure of our company. Their reception is always very touching. They put the best they have before you and will take nothing for their hospitality. In my various letters to you I have so often taken away the characters of our dogs that I must tell you of one just to show that I have not altered in my devotion to our true first friend. This dog's name was Black, and he lived many years ago at Mistaken Cove. The tales of his beauty, his cleverness at tricks, and his endurance of difficulties are still told, but chiefly of his devotion to his master. After years of this companionship, the beloved master died, and was buried in the woods near his lonely little house. Black was inconsolable. He would eat nothing, 
He started up at every slightest noise, hoping for the familiar whistle. He haunted the well-worn wood-path where they had had so many happy days together. Finally he discovered his master's grave, and was found frantically tearing at the hard earth and heavy stones. Nor would he leave the spot. Food was brought him daily, but it went untouched. For one whole week he lay in the wind and weather in the hole he had dug on the grave. There the children found him on the eighth morning, curled up and apparently asleep. His long quest and vigil were ended, for he had reached the happy hunting grounds. Who shall say that a beloved hand and voice did not welcome him home? St. Antoine Children's Home, by courtesy, February 28. Of one thing I am certain, we must have a new home, for this house is not fit for habitation, and it is not nearly large enough. Even after my recent return from living in the tiny homes of the people which one would fancy to be far less comfortable, this is forcibly impressed upon me. We simply cannot go on refusing to take in children who need its shelter so badly. So please spread this broadcast among the friends in England. This home has been enlarged once since it was built, and yet it is not nearly big enough for our present needs. We have no nursery, and I only wish you could see the tiny room which has to do duty for a sewing room. It is certainly only called room by courtesy, for there is scarcely space to sit down, much less to use a needle without risk of injury to one's neighbor. The weekly mend alone, without the making of new things, means now between two and three hundred garments in addition to the boots which the boys repair. As you can imagine, this is no light task, and we are often driven almost distracted. I think the stockings are the worst, sometimes a hundred pairs to face at once. I fear we must once have been led into making some rather pointed remarks on this subject, for later, on going into the sewing room, we found a slip of printed paper cut from a magazine and bearing the title of an article, Don't Scold the Children When They Tear Their Stockings. This building rocks like a ship at sea. The roof continually leaks, the windows are always coming abroad, and the panes drop out at scattered times, while even when shut the wind whistles through as if to show his utter disdain of our inhospitable and paltry efforts to keep him outside. On stormy nights, in spite of closed windows, the rooms resemble huge snowdrifts, Seven maids with seven mops sweeping for half a year could never get it clear. The building heaves so much with the frost that the doors constantly refuse to work, because the floors have risen, and if they are planed, when the frost disappears, a yawning chasm confronts you. Our storeroom is so cold in winter that we put on arctic furs to fetch in the food, and in summer it is flooded so that we swim from barrel to barrel as Alice floated in her pool of tears but far above all these minor discomforts is the one overwhelming desire not to have to refuse one of these little ones. One's heart aches when one remembers all the money and effort and love expended on a single child at home, that he may lack nothing to be prepared in body and spirit to meet the vicissitudes of his coming life journey. But in this land are hundreds of children, our own blood and kin, who must face their crushing problems often with bodies stunted from insufficient nourishment in childhood and minds unopened and undeveloped, not through lack of natural ability, but because opportunity has never come to them. As one looks ahead, one sees clearly what a contribution these eager children could offer their day, if only their cousins at home had the eyes of their understanding purged to behold things invisible and unseen. End of section 5. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan.